Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. We used the phrase being in it in the title of this podcast episode, Sherry. In what, you might be asking? <laughs> well... If you are in it, you will know you are in it. It's one of those kind of things. Mm. We first used the term in it. Well, we didn't use it. We it, it was first used with us on episode 54. Episode 54 featured our good friend Jane, who talked about how much time she had spent in it, meaning, you know, deep in the traumatic and stressful portion of an alcoholic relationship as the loved one of an alcoholic. And I just love it. Um, I don't <laughs> I don't love that people have to be in it, but I, I think it's it's just non-descriptive enough to be really descriptive when we talk about being in it. I mean, that's the point where there's not a lot of hope. You're like scratching your head, losing sleep. You hate the person you're living with, on some to some degree at least. And you haven't gotten things figured out yet. You're just kind of floundering. It's a tough position to be in. Sherry, oh, and and I do want to mention while we're talking about Jane and episode 54, which is a great episode if you haven't heard it yet, I strongly recommend you go back and listen to that one. Uh, Jane is also credited as coining the phrase discovery instead of recovery, which you and I have never really liked the word recovery We've always thought that that means, you know, recovery says we're going back to something from the past. But when you get healthy from alcoholism, either as the drinker or the loved one, you're moving forward to someplace you've never been before. There is no going back. And so we love Jane for a bunch of reasons. But another one of them is for her coining of the phrase discovery instead of recovery. But back to the being in it. You know, when I think back to our story, Sherry, of my alcoholism and how it affected you and our family, it was really gradual in my mind. And so my question to you is, did you even know that you were in it? Like as we've come to to think of that term? Hmm. I don't think so because I think you're right. It was so gradual and I feel like ours was like stretched out for a while. It was a slow process. Like for you, there was 10 years of knowing that you had an alcohol problem and working on it and trying to to quit or fix or control. And then we would have, you know, good days, bad days. And I think that's with with a lot of people that are in this situation. You don't really know you're in it. Now, there are some people that we know that are in the, the real bad in it, you know, like separation their spouse that's the alcoholic has moved out or they've kicked them out and you know are in rehab like we weren't in those severe situations so I I don't think that I understood that we were in it and maybe we were in it for so long and it felt so normal but then there are some people that like this is a quick transition yeah you know like I feel like we just had a slow long process so I feel like we were living in it for a good 10 12 years and it's so interesting to me because I totally agree we were in it for a long time it was really gradual and we didn't know how bad it was at the time yeah but it's interesting to me that now 
when we meet new people and we talk to new people, and I'm going to use a, a clinical term, so before I do, I want to just say, you and I readily acknowledge and embrace the fact that we are not therapists, we are not psychologists, we don't want to be therapists, we don't want to be psychologists, and we tell everyone that we meet that. Um, we just don't ever want to be accused of anything that we're of pretending to be anything that we're not. But I'm going to use the word diagnose because with the experience that we have, both our own experience and meeting all these other couples that are struggling in such similar ways, it's become really easy to diagnose when someone else is in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a variety of factors, and that's that's what I want to talk with you about today. The the things that just stand out, and you go, "Ooh, you get." You know, the hairs stand up on your arm and you go, oh, this person's in a bad spot and we know exactly what that's like. So let's talk about some of the things that are just clear indicators that that someone is in the middle of it. Um, First of all, usually when when someone's in the worst of the worst, the alcoholic, his him or herself. Who are we kidding? Usually it's a himself, but not always the alcoholic himself thinks his drinking is fine or if the drinker and and this certainly is was the case with me if the drinker does start to have concerns about his drinking his initial reaction is not sobriety it's what can I do to gain control of it okay I'm I'm getting blackout drunk more often than I'm comfortable with and I think it's interesting I think that's an accurate way to describe that I think it's interesting that we as burgeoning alcoholics think there is a tolerable amount of time to get blackout drunk. So it's not that we we get blackout drunk once and we're like, whoa, that can't ever happen again. No, we we just think we're getting blackout drunk too often. Like it's okay to sometimes do that. Uh, But anyway, so we're getting blackout drunk more often than we're comfortable with or we're staying up all night arguing with our loved one and saying things we regret more often than we're comfortable with. So the initial reaction is not, oh gosh, I got to stop drinking. The initial reaction is I got to get this under control. How can I be a moderate drinker? So yeah, when the when the person, when the loved one specifically, well, the relationship is in it, is deep in it. The drinker usually either is not willing to admit they have a problem. They think they drink like everybody else. Everybody they know, everybody they work with, all their friends come home after work every day and have a few drinks and they just think that they're normal or they recognize there's something wrong, but I'm going to exert willpower and get control over it. Now, we had, again, we talked about how gradual our demise was, but we had a long period of time where we were in that end of the pool, right, where it was... Either I was telling you, oh, Sherry, you're the one with the drinking problem. I I don't drink too much. Or I was telling you about the new rules I was coming up with mm-hmm. to control my drinking. What was that like for you? What did that feel like? Um, I know you hate I get, when, I, when I just provide you the answer well, and ask you to verify. So I'm giving question, you an open-ended question. The question is <laughs> hard to answer because I think that we were in it pretty early. And it just became so normal. It seemed like that was our normal relationship. I feel like I had questions and concerns early on, and there was that, oh, everybody drinks like this. You just didn't grow up with a healthy viewpoint of alcohol. So 
I guess it's a, for me, I feel like it's really hard to answer because I don't know how I felt because it was there so long. I mean, I mean, let's just think about it. I was drinking heavily the day we met. Yeah. So. Yeah. We, yeah. We, uh. Started living together in the summer of 1995. and The summer of love. <laughs> and it was the summer of, you know, like getting to know one another and realizing, wow, he does drink like this. Like, this is, and so I feel like maybe confusion was the, the best way to describe Ooh, yeah. that. I was very confused. I thought that we would drink moderately, like we were not in college anymore, you had a job, I had a job, we had an apartment, and so cats, and jobs, we were like adults, and so we wouldn't be acting like we're just in college. But so. to me, having jobs, all that meant was we have more money. We're still in our young, early 20s, and now we have more money, which I'll never forget. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the first month that we were living together in an apartment outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, and... Um, I was like, oh my God, look how much money we get paid. And and we spent it all in like the first half of the month and we didn't have any money for the second half of the month. And I was like, oh, that wasn't as much as I thought it was. Yeah. But anyway, that's kind of beside the point. You know, because we were, we were buying things for the, you know, establishing residency. Well, and, as you'll recall, yeah. I was trying to set up my liquor cabinet that yes. I had chosen, chosen a, a cabinet that, space that for. That could be a whole... That could be a whole podcast, your dreams of ever having a liquor cabinet. Because no, no bottles will ever last long enough to stock a liquor okay. cabinet. well, maybe it's a short podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think confusion would be the best thing, because that would be a, the best answer. What about the transition from... And, and I don't remember a distinct moment when this clicked in my head, so you maybe you don't either. Maybe you do. You have such, such a better memory than me. But from when I went to just, from just denying it and saying, Sherry, you're the one with the problem. Everybody drinks like this. To saying, okay, I'm going to put some rules around my drinking. I mean, when you say I'm not going to drink during the weekdays or I'm only going to drink beer and no hard alcohol. When you start to, to do these things that all alcoholics do, putting rules around your drinking. You are, whether you say it out loud or not, you are acknowledging that there is a problem. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to fix something if it isn't broken. So... Was there any comfort in that for you when I started trying to put rules around the drinking? Did you say, oh, he's at least recognizing this isn't on me just for being a prude. There's something wrong here. I suppose it did help in the beginning thinking, oh, he's going to have these rules. But you also would always come out of the shower with some epiphany that you had been thinking of. That was where I did all my tinkering in the shower. (laughs) Yeah. So, Wash off those bad ideas yeah. and bring so out So maybe new I ones. thought, well, you shower every day. So is it a new story every day? Thanks it's for telling thought. the listeners that I shower every day. That's yeah. nice. Better than I say every week. Um, so I suppose because you you always had a plan, you were always thinking, you were always trying to map out what was going to happen. I don't feel like I found as much comfort perhaps as I could have. Knowing that you were going to stick to this plan. Because there would always be some reason to break the rule. There would always be something better that you thought of. Or, you know, so I, I guess I didn't trust you in that way. That you could really hold those rules. Right off the bat. Like right from the beginning you didn't trust me. Maybe it took a couple of times of like, oh, well we're at a party and they're opening this fancy whiskey. And I was the beer only rule. So but, there go the rules. So there goes the rules. Exactly. I can't offend the host by not trying his fancy whiskey. <laughs> exactly. What am I, a heathen? Yeah. 
So there, because I just see you off. I've just seen you operate, and I'm not saying you're a bad guy or a dick or anything. But you always got things your way. I mean, you kind of are saying that. Which in the is beginning fine. of the relationship, you definitely wiggled and wormed and coaxed to get your way. Yeah. You would, you know, maybe it'd just plant... be quicker if you just called me a dick. No, I, I think that you know people just want what they want, yeah. and they're going to work to get it. And you just worked really hard to get what you wanted, and I. Maybe you just didn't fight back enough or stand up for myself because I was insecure about my own ideas and thoughts. And I questioned myself and I didn't maybe think about the, you know, what I really, going with my instincts and, and voicing them. So I, I feel like I definitely didn't trust you um, just because I had seen you operate. And um, I just, like, when you said that, I thought, oh, well, one of the first times you made this rule that you were only going to drink on the weekends, this was after the beer only. But, you know, the weekends were going to be Thursday night you played soccer, and I worked at our bakery on Fridays. So Thursday, Friday, Saturday, because Sunday was going to be a quote-unquote work or school day on Monday. So you you were not going to drink. And then you... Wasn't I not going to drink in the evening, but I could have beers in the but, afternoon? But I was going to say, so then you decided, oh, that seems silly. Oh, after Ridiculous. So I'll Who just, not drink I'll just quit by like, you know, four o'clock or two o'clock. Or then it was six o'clock and then you were drinking on Sunday nights and then, you know. Yeah. It just, you're, you just expanded it. So I had no hope. Yeah. In... Towards the end of that period of putting rules. I, I mean... Questionable hope, then no hope. Thinking back on that Sunday rule, it when I did, I think it was 3 o'clock was my time. I'm, I can drink from noon till 3. I can have beers from noon. Just a, just a few beers. But I'm not going to drink Sunday night. Like, I would turn into this banshee trying to suck down as many beers as possible between noon and 3. So that that buzz would carry me over through the evening i mean just so ridiculous looking back on it but at the time it all seemed logical to me Mm -hmm. so you kind of talked a little bit about this but so that's the first sign symptom that makes it really easy to diagnose someone who is in it that the alcoholic either thinks they're drinking is fine or they are trying to exert control over it the second sign or symptom is that the loved one that we're usually is who we're talking to is clearly indicating that they're living in a state of regular trauma or stress. Um, so their, their, their life, the loved one's life and the life of the kids that the loved one's trying to protect is becoming unmanageable. They talk in AA all the time. One of the, I think it's like the second step is admitting that your life is unmanageable. Maybe that's not the second step. I can't remember. But you know you know who else, who's else's life? Who else's life becomes unmanageable? The loved one, the spouse, the person that's living with the alcoholic, just full of trauma and stress. And this is where it becomes really evident, again, that the person is in it because they're usually, almost always, trying to control themselves. Just like the, the drinker is trying to control their drinking with rules, the loved one is usually deep in trying to control the uncontrollable, trying to get their spouse to realize they have a problem, um, taking their first stab at something that kind of sort of resembles boundaries, saying, you know, 
I don't want you coming to Sunday night dinner if you're drinking, things like that. And and definitely controlling, keeping the kids away from the loved one. There's probably worry and concern on the part of the spouse for whether or not the drinker gets to drive the kids around like ever. So these are the kinds of things that are just key indicators that someone is in it when they're they're diving headfirst into their codependency. They're trying to, they're not, like detachment isn't even on the radar. They're just trying to control it and make it better. And I know that you've witnessed this right alongside me, Sherry, with with the people that we are blessed to have in our lives that we get to work with. But what what's your recollection of that period in our life? And you're giving me that look again, like, I got to remember something that was way back then. Your memory's fading. I think that's a good sign. Yeah. That means we're getting better. I I wasn't looking like that, I thought. Oh, what was that I was like? trying to start thinking of, of things. Um, well, I, I mentioned that I feel like if I were to have put boundaries or rules or suggestions or offers yeah. around what I thought was a healthy situation and you didn't agree, you would manipulate or change or... So we would often, this is a good example, like say, okay, sometimes you would offer to be the designated driver. This is a good Well, example. I knew that that was a fucking joke. Pardon my French. Like, no way. Like, because you could say, oh, Sherry, you can have one glass of wine and be the designated driver, but I can have four or five beers and be the designated driver. I'm like, well, what kind of, like, what kind is, is you know, is designated driver is that? I mean, I probably wouldn't have had that much more to drink than the one glass of wine or whatever, or a couple of cocktails, and you're like, oh, but I can handle those double IPAs, and I can do about five or, you know, four or five of them, and that's fine. So there was often times that we would, I would say, you are, we, whoever is the driver is not going to drink. And then you would drink, and because you would say you were the designated driver, and then how do we not have an argument in front of the kids, at the car, in front of the neighbors, of the friend's house that we were at, in front of the friends? How stressful that must have been for it you, was, like walking to the car knowing, knowing you're going to try to fight the keys away from Knowing that you're going to take over me. and drive. I mean, one time I remember we were coming home, and even the people at the party, yeah, they were guys you played soccer with, and we were having family kind of holiday party. And they're like, dude, let Sherry drive. Like, yeah. this is ridiculous. Yeah. And I was so mad because our daughter had gotten dropped off from going caroling to this family party. And and I thought, oh, surely to goodness with the pressure of his friends saying, you know, yeah. let Sherry drive that you would give in. But you didn't because yeah. you were going to because, you know, I had had a drink. They had some nice alcohol and they were having a cocktail and I had had a cocktail instead of a glass of wine and you felt like that was too much for me to handle to drive home and you got like a little cold sweat when you were telling that story that's a little vomit in your mouth I've heard all of these stories I know all these stories but that is very that that's very embarrassing to me yeah that was one night I was like oh my gosh you know I almost wish that you would get pulled over I mean we were driving through neighborhoods of 25 miles an hour and you were definitely driving slow but I kept thinking oh man you know maybe because this was towards the end of your drinking career that I was like god I would just love it if he if we got pulled over right now because you know I don't know what they would do with me and the kids I mean then I started getting scared because you know they pulled me over yeah like what would they do to me sure you got home 
Yeah, but I mean, I was fine to drive, and they'd be like, "What kind of dumbass wife oh, lets their husband oh. drive like that, too?" Oh. You know, and like, would that Are you be kidding me? The police, you don't think they see that? You know, all but day, I was like, day? then they would say, "Oh man, like, what kind of incompetent parent is she?" No way, no way. I, I mean, they see it all the time. I mean, I, you know, I used to watch Cops religiously. It was my favorite show. Like every call they go on is alcohol or drug related yeah. in one way or another. It's tearing you up a little bit to think about how they would have thought you were irresponsible, though. Because I felt like it. And that's the spot you get put in. And I felt like our kids thought of that. And that's the spot you get put in when you're dealing with an arrogant asshole who won't... Who's bigger than you and stronger than you and won't relinquish. And when, when we talk about these boundaries and rules and with some of our people that are in it, I think would... Is their spouse just as stubborn and going to change their mind? I think that's one reason I avoided doing a lot of that is because I knew that you would just manipulate or argue or try to make me feel so, I don't know, stupid, I suppose, that I would have even thought that that was a good plan. And you would just, you know, coax your way into getting what you wanted. So I always worry when, when we talk about boundaries, and I think it's great, and I love the strength of the people that are putting those boundaries up and trying to set these rules, but I know for you it would have never mattered. Like, don't come to bed if you've been drinking. You would have been like, you know, that's not happening. Yeah, the, for me, the boundaries would have had to, would have involved you leaving, or me leaving. It, yeah, a, a, a day-by-day... If if you've been drinking, go find a different place to stay or don't come to bed. That would never have worked. Because once I was drinking, I was I was Alcohol irrational and yeah. not negoti- negotiable with. Yeah. So, God, that's not a word. But but yeah, you, you all reason went out the window. All rules, anything that made sense to me or that we had put in place together, because you wanted what you wanted. I'm glad you brought this up because. One of the other real signs that someone is in it, you know, is something that they don't tell us. Not necessarily what they do tell us, but what they don't tell us. Often when we're first meeting the spouses of alcoholics, they they hold something back. And it's completely understandable. They don't know us from Adam, right? Right. But they often hold back the things that the alcoholic is able to say when the alcoholic is drunk. The vile, nasty, demeaning, horrid things that, you know, that I would never, ever dream of saying. Even to someone I didn't like, I wouldn't say those things. But I was able to say them to you when I was drinking. And And I was able to say them back to you because I was was mad. Right, and I was either trying to knock you down because you were trying to you know, impose a boundary or you were trying to get the keys to drive or whatever. Um, or I was just in in that out of my right mind, intoxicate, intoxicated place. And uh, I would say mean, vile, awful things. And, you know, when we, when we're first meeting people, you can, I can, I don't know. Have you ever noticed? I can, I can feel like mm, there's a they're lot experiencing more. that. There's more. Yeah, there's a lot more that they're not sharing because for what it's hard, it's embarrassing. Yeah. Like you said, they don't know us at the beginning. They don't feel. And and what's sad for them, they don't know how common this is. <laughs> they don't know that 
whatever's being said to them, they think they feel weak because of it, because they're putting up with it. They feel unique that their spouse is the only one that can get this mean and evil, this wonderful person that they've loved and they married because of all the charming qualities and good characteristics that that person can turn into this evil monster when they're drinking. They think they think that's unique. It's not unique. It's again, back to my favorite term. It's a universalism. When we drink and we're feeling a little pinned in, we can get those claws out and say the nastiest things you could ever imagine to the person that we love most in the world. And when you're on the receiving end of that, like you said, Sherry, you know, alcohol changes both people in the relationship, not just the drinker, but the the recipient of the abuse learns how to give the abuse back pretty, pretty good. You were able to say some pretty awful things back. But again, I don't blame you. I still blame the alcohol. The alcohol was the reason I said what I said. And the alcohol that I was drinking was the reason you said what you said. But it's there, and we can, when we first meet people, we can often see that living kind of under the surface. They're, they're not yet ready to tell us. Um, and that's fine. We don't ever try to pry that out of people. I, yeah, mean, I mean, you know, it's not like, I don't need you to tell me for me to know. You know what I mean? Yeah. That sounds super arrogant. Well, and I know that for me, sometimes it was just, I would say those things because after a while, you're just so angry and you just have to spew it out. And most of the time, you were never going to remember what I said. But then. I feel like subconsciously you knew that I had hurt you. And I knew that I had hurt you with some of the things that I would say. Um, but you're just so full of anger and disgust. It's And I admire people that can just like not say those things out loud and, and walk away or leave if they have an opportunity. You know, <clears throat> and, and I'm sort of jealous of the them if their spouse is one that you're like you know just go cool off in another room and they actually do whether they just take their bottle and go drink themselves to pass out I mean you and I definitely had to finish a fight you know yeah so usually well into the next day yeah well so so that idea of taking time out and separating that kind of leads into the next thing I wanted to, to talk about when when someone is in it and they're in these knockdown drag out battles or they're they're flexing their codependency muscles they're trying to control a situation that's uncontrollable the idea of detachment it's not only something that that person probably doesn't understand it's just so counterintuitive it doesn't even make sense it would be like like if someone told you that to put out a, a bonfire you should pour gasoline on it Detachment, what do you mean? I've got to fix this person. I don't have to separate from this person. I've got to fix them. I've got kids with this person. This is my spouse. I don't want to, I don't want to separate. I don't want to divorce. I don't want to co-parent um, when we're divorced. Um, I've got, got to make this work. And the only way I can think of to make it work is to work harder to get, to roll up my sleeves, to get in there deeper. And that's where the codependency comes from. The idea that pulling away is actually the only chance you have at fixing it. And it might fix it and it might not fix it. But it's still the only chance that you have at fixing it is pulling away and detaching. That's so counterintuitive. As are so many things 
related to alcohol addiction, addiction in general, and recovery and discovery. You got to do the opposite of of what makes sense. And so when we when we meet people and and the concept of detachment and boundaries, boundaries to some extent, but detachment for sure just seems foreign to them. That's a sure sign. Boy, this person is in the middle of it right now. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that we found in in our relationship, certainly, and in working with others both on both sides of the street, the drinkers and the loved ones, for some period of time, the idea of leaving feels unthinkable. It feels unthinkable to both people in the relationship. I know on earlier podcast episodes, maybe the first one that, that you were on, maybe back to episode nine, I can't remember if that's where, but we, we talked about how, you know, marriage was sacred to us and we were just not going to get divorced. And we've received feedback from a fair number of listeners who said that that was kind of offensive, people who had gotten divorced. And they said, you know, when I got married, I was serious about it too. And I wasn't going to get divorced either. And then divorce became the only alternative. So when you and Matt, when you and Sherry talk about how, oh, you know, uh, marriage is a sacred vow and we're not going back on it. Um, that's offensive to people who have as a last resort as the only thing that they could do to save themselves and save their children gotten divorced. That's an offensive way to say it. And I agree. And I, you know, every time that someone has brought that to our attention, I've apologized for that. You're right. Nobody, nobody gets married and sets out to get divorced. There are, you know, whatever celebrities that kind of make a mockery of marriage when they've been married nine times. And, you know, clearly that's not all that sacred, Mm -hmm. but the rest of us, the regular folks that get married, we do so hoping it's the one and only time in our lives and then work like hell to make it the one and only time in our lives. And then if it doesn't work, it takes a great deal of strength and bravery to get divorced. That's what I've learned just in, you know, in the last year, um, Divorce is about strength, not about weakness. Staying is about strength too, so don't get me wrong. I'm not encouraging divorce. But there's a point in it, when you are in it, when leaving just feels unthinkable to both of you. And I want to describe what that was like in our relationship. For me, it was more of that kind of sacred bond. I still love you very, very much. Um, I would be embarrassed to the rest of my family and friends if we were to get divorced that was a part of it certainly what's best for the kids was at the top of my list of reasons that I wouldn't even consider divorce so those are kind of my reasons for you I know that those were you know kind of among the reasons but there's also and we run into this a lot with the people that we talk to and work with there's also the financial component right like Mm -hmm. We had this business that was in both of our names. You were 51% owner, but I was, you know, kind of the primary go to the business and do the work person. And you had no interest in taking over the business and running it on your own. Um, And so if you were to leave, that would mean going back home to Southern Indiana to your mom's house and kind of starting over from scratch, right? So I suppose because I think Denver would have been too pricey. I mean, you know, I guess initially I probably had like packed up and, and moved right. home while we were working out all the details. But did that weigh on you though? When it was like, when well, I say that 
leaving at least initially seems unthinkable to both of us. Was that one of the re- like? I just think you had more practical reasons for divorce being unthinkable, and for me, it was more ego. Like, oh, I can't let anyone see us get divorced. That'd be embarrassing. Yeah. Um, practical reasons for sure. Financial reasons, absolutely. Um, part of the, I, I know that you sometimes don't remember these conversations, but um, when we were first married, you had talked about having children, and I said, "Well, I grew up with a." single working mother. And for me, if I decide to be a mother, I would rather choose a more traditional role of being able to have a part-time job or flexible schedule where I can spend time with the kids. And I was not super excited about like trying to straddle both worlds. Um, I think because, you know, we all want what we didn't get, right? In a lot of ways when we're kids. Yeah, that's a good point. So I wanted to be the kind of stay-at-home traditional mom. So when we started having kids and then the problems started really getting numerous and then we had the business and I wouldn't say that I was completely stay-at-home mom when we had our bakery because I did work part-time. Oh, yeah. You know, and I filled in holidays and stuff and then um, there was... There's always something to do when you own your own business, too. So, but having that flexible schedule... And being able to say, oh, well, this Friday is field day for the kids' elementary school. Can you work my Friday shift, Matt? And I'll work another day of the week for you. You know, so yeah. that, it was financial. Absolute financial. Because I wouldn't have been able to, like, aff- have a job where I could have lived where we lived, close to where in our neighborhood, and been able to make it on my own as a single parent. Another thing that you've shared, I, th- I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but even though... You know, I, I would drink and get out of control often enough that it was it was traumatic and stressful and awful. But it wasn't so often... Like, what I'm trying to say is, I think you still saw the kids having a father and living with their mm-hmm. father as being imp- so important yeah. that it was almost like you could put up with... The trauma of living with an alcoholic, at yeah. least at least yeah, for a we, good portion of the time. And we know that we didn't completely, the kids weren't completely unknowing of your drinking. There certainly were times that they were made aware, but for the most part, you were not obliterated at, you know, 5.30 at dinner every single night. You still were very active, very participant. You were also very worried about your... Um, Reputation, sure. As a business owner, as the volunteer soccer dad for the rec center, and then eventually, you know, getting paid for this um, soccer job. So you were very concerned about your reputation and your outward appearance. So you were not, um, you know, just walking around the neighborhood with a beer in your hand. But don't you think that's typical of the people that we work with? I think it absolutely their, is. Their drinker is high-functioning and trying yes. to hide it and trying to be a good dad and genuinely trying to be a good dad. Yeah, and, and genuinely I saw wanting to that you were, work and, and I well saw work. that you were engaged and interested. So I didn't feel like you were a, a defunct parent altogether or a defunct partner, um, I think, because of your ability to maintain and hold together a lot of things. And it wasn't physical, it wasn't verbal all the time. Yeah, so that idea of uh, divorce separation being unthinkable to both parties, is a, it's a common symptom of someone who is in it. That That's a key indicator. I mean, 
often the the initial email we get from people is, I'm contacting you to help me save the marriage. Mm-hmm. I, I am saving this marriage. Well, and, I... and, you know, and, and as we, as the, the story starts to unfold, the person starts to entertain the idea that, oh my God, this might not survive. Mm-hmm. And I have to be realistic about that. And that's important. And, and I guess the, the point that I want to make here is, I think that is one of the keys to having the relationship survive is being honest and open to the idea that it might not. Because the steps you have to take to save the relationship are not about holding on tighter. They're about letting go. And so if you're not in your head willing to admit that it might not work, then I don't know how you do the things you have to do to make it work. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So that's I, that's what I want to transition into talking about next. We've talked about how to diagnose when someone is in it. But so then what do you do about it? And it's these, these Al-Anon words that we've all learned, right? Boundaries and detachment. And prioritizing putting the kids first. You know... The, and, and we've talked in the past, it, it's super important when it comes to setting boundaries. And, and just to back up, because I think we probably have listeners that might not be familiar with that term. You know, setting boundaries is saying, these are the things I'm willing to accept and these are the things that I'm not willing to accept in my relationship. And the most important thing about setting boundaries is if you're going to draw a line in the sand, make sure it's one that you're comfortable enforcing. Only one time in my 10 years of active alcoholism and my 25 years of drinking, only one time did you say something to the effect of, if you don't stop drinking, I'm taking the kids and we're going home to Indiana. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, it scared me for sure. But there was, I just knew that there was too much involved in that for you to actually do it. I mean, uprooting, I just didn't feel like, I guess we were in bad enough of a place that you would have been willing to just uproot and go. So one of the things that we talk about with people when it comes to boundaries, make sure it's something that you are 100% willing to to execute on. So rather than pick, take the kids and go home, you know, six states away, maybe it's something like, you know, if, if you come home and you're drinking, the kids and I are going to go to the other part of the house. We're going to lock the door and we're not going to participate with you until the next day. Because that's something that hopefully you can actually execute on. And that's really, really important. You know, I am not talking to you if you've been drinking. I am not engaging with you. I'm not going to have laughy, fun conversation. And I'm not going to have serious, hateful conversation. I'm just not talking to you at all if you've been drinking. And I, and the person who decides whether you've been drinking or not is me as the loved one, is you as the loved one. Not, you know, I'm not going to believe you if you tell me you haven't been drinking. Mm-hmm. We have people that we work with that buy breathalyzers. And some people swear by them. And some people say the breathalyzer doesn't always work. Certainly, the drinkers always say the breathalyzer yeah, doesn't work. I had, something wrong. I had some uh, mint tea for lunch, so that's what's setting it it's off. It's my mouthwash. It's my mouthwash. Mm-hmm. Boy, that trident gum sure is spearminty today. Um, but so the the important part about the boundaries is it be something that you're a hundred percent, no questions asked, comfortable enforcing, and that it is enforceable. You know, like what you said, Sherry. If you and I had set, and we did many times say, okay, listen, when it starts to get heated and we start to argue, we're both going to take a timeout. We're going to go to separate parts of the house for five minutes and cool down and then we can talk again. 
well, that's not enforceable because if we live in the same house, I'm just going to follow you around and beat you down until you talk to me again. Not physically beat you down, but verbally beat you down. So, you know... When or we talk- I'm so angry that I'm like, oh my God, this five minutes must be up. I need to get off of my chest. Oh yeah, you violated yeah. it too. But either yeah. way, it was unenforceable. And But but here's another one. You know, we a lot of times people say they've gotten their spouse to agree that if the spouse has been drinking, they'll leave and go stay at their mom's house or whatever. And that's fine when they're sober. They're going to agree to that. But when they're drinking, they're not going to agree to that anymore. They're going to say, well, I pay the mortgage. I'm not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Or it's my house, too. It's my house, too. I haven't been drinking that much. You're the one that's crazy. And then it, you know. So that's a, the boundary has to be enforceable, not only emotionally, like you have to be willing to go there, but you actually have to be able to physically enforce the, the boundary. And if that's a boundary that's kind of a soft boundary like that, it's not enforceable. Mm-hmm. And it just leads to more and more trauma. I mean, and that's when it gets bad, right? Because that's when you're saying, "I, you agreed to this. You said you would do it, and now you're not doing it. Well, if you think that that drinker was vile and obnoxious before, now you've really got him in a corner. Because they know. I, We know. I knew I had agreed to do whatever. And if I was now going back on that, I knew I was in the wrong. And you want to see a nasty, awful person... See someone that knows they're wrong but still is fighting. Mm-hmm. That person's disgusting and deplorable. And I'm trying to think of other words, but that's all that's coming to mind. So the boundaries piece, it's important to understand. It's important that they be emotionally enforceable, but it's also important that they be physically enforceable. So sad as it is, I think the people that we've seen where the boundaries are the most successful is when the spouse, the wife says, if you drink, the kids and I are going to leave, not not drive six states to Indiana, but we're going to leave for the night. Mm-hmm. And does that suck? Yeah. Is it bad for the kids? 100%. Is it unfair? Totally unfair. But is it something you can actually do? Can you get the keys to your car, throw the kids in there and drive away? Well, and I think we for can. those sort of Usually boundaries, you, can. you have a plan. You have to have a ba- You have to plan. You have to have a to-go bag. You have to have an extra set of keys. You know, you've got to have these things in a lot of ways, and it's terrible. It's terrible. You right. Have to, so when we talk about how leaving so feels unthinkable. planning your boundaries that you're going to physically enforce, you know, that's that's a whole other element. And it's scary, and it's sickening, and you feel deceptive, you know, to well, think that, about, oh, sitting down in the basement or in the trunk of my car is a overnight bag for me and all the kids to go to a hotel and cash. You know, you drive around, you know it's in there, you know, and you're just... And that's the difference between someone who's in it, like we said, who leaving still feels unthinkable to them, to the person who's actually ready to take the action steps necessary to make a change for the positive, whether that change results eventually in separation and divorce, or that change results in the drinker recognizing that their only chance is sobriety. Because that's what it did to me. That's what, when you finally figured out how to detach, which like we've said, ours was gradual. It took forever. We didn't have anyone telling us the steps to take. But when you finally figured that out, that's the thing that scared me. Now, I quit drinking because I was in enough pain and that's the only reason someone will quit drinking. But your detachment, it was adding to my pain. I could tell you didn't care anymore. You didn't want to hear about it anymore. Um, so yeah, those steps, the go bag, the 
extra set of car keys, the little bit of cash, all of that. When you're in it and you're stuck, that seems unthinkable. The healing process starts when you get those things ready to go. Because mm-hmm. now you're, you're, leaving is not unthinkable. Leaving is a possible result. Not the one you're hoping for, but it's a possible result and you're acknowledging that. Detachment, you know, is is another one of those Al-Anon terms that we embrace and appreciate that's it's it's related to boundaries, but it's a little bit different. Detachment can often be emotional. You know, one of my favorite stories is um, of, of one of the people in our Echoes of Recovery group talked about how did, what detachment means for her. The easiest way to describe it is when her husband would go out on the front porch to watch the sunset and, and drink. And then he would pass out out there and the sun would go down. And in Colorado, we get like 30 degree temperature changes when the sun goes down. And, um, and then he would come back in, you know, he'd wake up cause he was freezing to death and he'd come back in and he would blame her and say, why didn't you wake me up or bring me a blanket? I was freezing out there. And she would say, Oh, that sounds like that was unfortunate for you. And then turn around and walk out, mm-hmm. you know, Stop trying to fix the problem. Don't go out and shake him and wake him up and yeah. try to get him to come in. Don't For tell me- him, you know, don't don't bring him a blanket. Let him suffer the consequences of his own actions. And that's detachment. Detachment is what worked best for us. And Absolutely. I didn't realize it was detachment because I knew that you, boundaries were going to be, have to be hardcore. Like it would have to be me packing for a long term and leaving. Yeah. Like I... You know, I couldn't say don't sleep in the bed or, you know, because at some points we didn't have an extra guest bed and we only have love seats. We don't have couches. So that would be really uncomfortable. (laughs) I'm only 5'9". I can fit in a love seat. (laughs) So so a lot of those things, those physical boundaries wouldn't have happened or I don't want to have sex with you when you've been drinking. Well, you know, that could cause an argument. So the detachment, that emotional detachment and disinterest is what really worked best for us yeah i didn't realize i was doing it i had just gotten fed up yeah you weren't you weren't i following any Al-Anon advice no, you just, I just didn't like... care for me anymore or care about <laughs> me anymore and and maybe that's how it's just happenstance for some people but if you learn about that and then you're like oh well this is an easy one to do we like oh you cut your finger well there are the band you know or not even say you know where the band-aids are be like mm, that sucks and then walk away you know yeah, absolutely. Let them suffer the consequences, whatever the consequences are. If, you know, if it's more severe, if if they uh, get to spend a night um, in an all expense paid, you know, three by three cell or how big your cells? Nine by nine yeah. cell, whatever. Yeah, I'm trying to make a joke out of that. that was yeah. Bad. Well, if they get locked up for the night, don't go bail them out. Yeah. Like, yeah. And one of our, one of the stories the we heard was. There were they were at a, a family sporting event or something, and it was a big arena, and the drinker passed out, and the family left. The spouse and the kids left. Oh yeah. And I I was like, gosh, yeah, I remember. I remember waking you up from a concert before we even had kids. You were at a rock concert and you passed out. <laughs> rock concert and you passed out. Well, I, I passed out during a ballad. Clearly. <laughs> clearly. You know, like you could pass out anywhere. I could. And you would always say, oh, he's so sleepy. Fairly, oh, yeah. And we always said, he, oh, he fell asleep. He works hard. He's tired. Yeah. Well, 
Now we know that it was really just passing out. It was 100% passing out. So, Well, and one that happened with us, one of the most despicable nights of my life was, you know, we'll, we'll spare the details of all the drinking, but I, I, you did drive because I, I literally couldn't see my hand in front of my face. I was so drunk. And I passed out on the passenger side and then puked all over myself and you just left me in there. And the next day, I mean, it was like 9 or 10 o'clock in the morning. The sun was baking my puke-encrusted... Hope you weren't trying to eat while you're listening yeah. to this listener. But, and like the windows were all up. It was just Well, because it was October. Just, it was a Halloween party. But here in Colorado, our springs are wet and snowy. And our falls are like summer. So, and the sun and... But the windows were up because it was kind of cool at night. cool at night. And then here comes the sun. But you just left me out. Sun. You didn't try to wake me up and bring me in. You didn't try to clean me up. You didn't do anything. I remember like... And that Noticing was great the vomit was there, and then I was like, "If it, if there is one drop of vomit in my car and it smells like it, you're gonna go get this car completely fucking detailed, yeah. and it's coming out of your alcohol cache." Because I was, like, I was not gonna have anything that stunk. I mean, we could have, you know, one of the kids could have spilled a gallon of milk that they were trying to drink in the back seat as a, you know, during a snack. But if that milk spilled, that was gonna be fine. But there was not gonna be any vomit. And any alcohol vomit. Any alcohol vomit. Yeah, no, that was great detachment on your hand, on your part. Um, so that th- those are some good examples for those that aren't familiar with detachment. It's it's an emotional thing, and it's important. It it was a huge factor in my sobriety. I think it also depends on the drinker. Like what you what have you to mean? know. Well, some people don't really care about emotional detachment. If you say, if you've been drinking, I want you to go sleep in a separate room, and that drinker might be like, great, then I can just drink all night. Yeah. I don't care about snuggling in bed with my spouse. Yeah, but, I mean, yes, you're right. Some people are more comfortable being detached from, but it's still your only choice Mm -hmm. as the loved one. Like, there is no amount of control that you can exert to fix this person or to get them to go your way. So even if you detach and they're like, fine, I, uh, me and all my friends, me and my six-pack are going to go be fine when you detach, it's still your only choice. You still got to do it. Well, for sure. I'm just saying that some people, I think, might do better with boundaries and some might do better with detachment. Aha. Uh-huh. That's what Good I'm saying point. is you kind of have to know like what works. Like There were no boundaries that weren't going to be crossed. We had crossed every boundary. Yeah. You are emotionally attached to me, and you were really interested in knowing what was going on and being a part of the family. That is nothing bad. I'm not, you know, I think that it's great. But that was your, that was your weakness, and that was the only option I had. So I think that there could be, you have to weigh the situation. I didn't think about it until just now, thinking about what worked for us and what didn't. And when I hear stories of a physical boundary works better for them and they will actually hold to it. You know what it all comes down to, I think? The the loved one has to start to prioritize herself and she has to start to prioritize the kids. I mean, I think it's very natural mama bear instinct for the loved one to prioritize the kids. So I don't think we need to dwell on that. I think that just is innate. That's a thing. But I think to prioritize yourself for the the spouse, the the wife to prioritize herself, I think that's very very difficult. I think after years of gaslighting, after years of sacrifice, both for for the for the marriage, for the husband, for the kids, all the sacrifice, I think prioritizing 
yourself as the loved one in an alcoholic marriage is excruciatingly difficult. And it all comes down to learning to love yourself. And I know that's really cliche, Brene Brownish. I'm a big Brene Brown fan. I'm not trying to be critical, but it sounds really kind of frou-frou, but it it's totally true. I mean, I've come to kind of, and didn't we talk about this on a previous podcast? I've more and more, I'm believing that addiction, everyone says the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. I think connection is important, but I think the opposite of addiction is self-esteem. I think the opposite of addiction is loving yourself. And that goes for the drinker, the drug user, the porn watcher, the whatever. But it also goes for the loved one that's impacted by it. It goes for the spouse. Learning to love yourself enough to pull away, to detach, to set up the boundaries, to prioritize you, to prioritize you and the kids over the alcoholic, over the marriage, over the sanctity of marriage, over all of it, is really hard and profoundly important at the same time. Because if you love yourself enough, if you believe in yourself enough, that's kind of where you've got to get to before any kind of recovery or discovery is going to take place. And it is necessary for reconciling an alcoholic marriage. Thank you for letting me get up on my soapbox for a minute. How do you feel about my little... You don't have any feelings? <laughs> no. If I have my... It'll just sound a little critical, but... Oh, I want to hear it. Okay, when I you're like, like you know, Brene Brown, when you said you got to love yourself, it made me laugh thinking about... It's not all just women that are saying that, like... Oh, no, you know. men say it too. Yeah, so it just made me think of... Soft and cuddly men like me. Stuart Smiley from Saturday Stuart Night Live with this... Yes. You know, words He's of very affirmation. Cuddly. Yeah, this is words of affirmation, you're good enough, yeah. That sort of stuff, but that's why I was thinking Yeah, but you know, the, the, the tough, grizzled construction worker guy... He needs to love himself, too. He yeah. just doesn't know it and isn't willing yeah. to admit it. But I think that um, having that self-esteem and that love for yourself and prioritizing yourself, because when you prioritize yourself, then then you have more empowerment and you have more of a voice and you respect yourself more to not put up with some of the things that you had been putting up with as the spouse of an alcoholic or a, or any sort of addiction. And... and- I want to be really clear here. Don't confuse narcissism for self-love. Um, having an out-of-control ego is not the same thing as believing in yourself. Mm-hmm. That That's a, a coping mechanism. That's trying to get everyone around you to build you up because you really feel like an empty shell yeah. inside. That's the opposite. So, yeah. you know, narcissism, arrogance, the, the thing we see from the rich and powerful, that's not the lesson. That's not where we're trying to steer people. Self-love is contentment. It's like, I don't give a rip what you think of me because I feel pretty good about myself. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. It's yeah. simple. But it's it's got to be strong enough to direct your decision-making. Yeah, and valuing yourself and knowing that you were created to be loved and to love yourself is one of the best Absolutely. options and feel confident. Because I think once you feel confident too... Then when you're dealing with your spouse while they're drinking and you're making these boundaries and you're setting these, like, then you're detaching, they know. Like, I'm, I, I feel like Absolutely. you knew when I was, like, 
serious and I was done and I could say, I am putting up with this no more, whether, you know, or you knew that there would be this wishy-washy, she's insecure, I've made her feel. Your your confidence level comes through pretty loud and clear on these podcast episodes now, but as some of our listeners have shared, it's been fun for them as they've listened to the earlier podcast to listen to you find your voice and find your confidence on these recordings and that's kind of symbolic of what has just happened in real life mm-hmm. for you. There was a time when I had beaten you down to the point where you didn't know whether you were coming or going. And now you've got your feet so solidly under you and you respect yourself and you have confidence in yourself and you know that you're a good person and that the things that you think and the things that you say have value. Ooh, you're cringing a little. Am I going too far? Yes. Well, After you're very, you, you said Ugh, we have to be cringy. lovable. You're very lovable. I hope well, you I love def- yourself as much as I love you. And I, it's, I'm hoping that all of these podcasts are helping people get to a shorter time frame of this because even though you had quit drinking, there was still so many problems and the healing needed to happen. So I, I just feel so impressed when we meet people who are working on themselves while they're in it. I know the 20-year-olds and the 30-somethings that are like, that are like years and decades ahead of us. Mm-hmm. So impressive. Yeah. Even they feel lost, but we're like, whoa. You're, you are you're, you are you're headed in the, the right game. direction. Right. You know, you've got the right map, the That's right, right GPS. So. That's right. Well, thanks for talking about this with me. Sorry uh, we brought you to tears, but... Um, That's okay. You expressed your emotions and we appreciate it. Love you, Sherry. Love you too. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.